How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 155. Oh, another director's corner coming at you, Zeke. I'm very excited. Yes, this is the... I can't do my math off the top of my head. Uh, tw- the, the 31st. 20, 21st? 31st. Oh, you're right. Correct. 31st. Director's corner. So that'll be happening later in the show. Mm. To kick us off, Jake, do you have a, a trivia fact for us? <laughs> you can see we're really well prepared. I do, actually. I do. And, and mine doesn't come from any typical website or anything like that. It comes from my own brain. Comes okay. from the, the from the the brain of Jake. You know when they have those little notepads and it's like the mind of Jake or mm-hmm. from the memoir. Of Jake? I don't know. That, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the memory, the something of Selma or Patty from Simpsons. I don't know what I'm coming up with, but my trivia course is from a 2015 video shared by none other than the Criterion Collections YouTube channel. Of course, sees Sean Baker himself going through a library of DVDs and making selections, and it's a great video, but. What I love about it is the preset of it that goes into the film of the week, The Florida Project, of course. And you can actually see him in the video grab a copy. I should uh, clarify, a copy of Kez, which is a 1969 film. And as he grabs it, he says, I am making a film with kids very soon, which, of course, refers to The Florida Project. That's a nice little hint at history if you want to find it. And uh, everyone in the comments section was very excited about that (laughs) fun fact. Well, um, jumping over to something a bit more grounded and based in the film, obviously a really interesting part about this film is its grounded authenticity, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later about Baker's uh, sort of directorial change, at least to his more contemporary films, and how grounded they are in realism. Um, This is really interesting. I found that the casting of, in his film in particular, Mm. particularly uh, that of the one who plays Haley, which is Bria, I'm going to say Bria Venante, um, mm. who obviously didn't have any acting experience and was a Instagram model, yeah, yeah. which um, obviously was based around, obviously the casting wasn't trying to, uh, definitely not trying to, obviously with, you know, obviously this being award season was not a film marketing itself as award films. It wasn't, for example, like other films where like something like an Amy Adams is playing a tragic uh drugged up mum and oh, I'm like hillbilly elegy and hillbilly elegy yep, yep. um and yeah, it went for that authenticity it went yeah. for like real people yeah and it's like i know willem dafoe he was the only the only oscar nomination for this film was willem dafoe's performance of course being the only real seasoned actor that that we've heard of at yeah. least into this film but and the, yeah. you know obviously we'll talk a bit more about baker's authenticity between you know this film and something like tangerine a little bit later on in the show yep. Mm. But Jake, yes, that's me. I'm going to pose the question to you. Okay. Um, obviously, this is a 2017 film. Um, yes. Would this be on your list? Mm. Um, My list of 1,100 films. films. Yeah. So I will say this film is eligible to be on the poster because the poster goes up 2018. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about that in a minute. I a thousand percent would put it on my poster of films you must mm. watch before you die. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Spoiler alert. <laughs> what about you, Zeke? Hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. Very Easy. nice. Well, I will say. Well, you tell me. Do you think it is on the poster or not? Sitting behind you. I hope so. It a thousand percent is beautiful. I'm very glad that it is. It deserves to be on there. Fantastic. Well, moving on from there, Jake. Have you caught anything in the last week? I caught a lot, Zeke. Yeah, big week. Absolutely, a lot. So I'm just gonna have to blitz through this. Hopefully, you've actually seen a couple of these 
as well. I'll quickly start with Sharp Objects, which I talked about two weeks ago, having just started. It's an eight-episode mm-hmm. mini-series that I actually have on Blu-ray, although you can you can watch it on Binge as well. And ironically, it does also star Amy Adams in it as well, not just from Hillbilly, <laughs> Hillbilly Elegy. Um, and before I get into it, I actually do want to say a big uh, you know, rest in peace to Mr. Jean-Marc Valley, who actually passed away in the last week. Mm. Who, of course, directed this miniseries. And he, went, he did Dallas Buyers Club and, and that as well. Mm. And um, I think Big Little Lies was another series. Very he sadly on. young. It was 50, 57. 50, yeah, 57, 58. But either way, very young. Um, and it's unfortunate, especially because okay. this series is really excellent. Now, I'll just quickly go into because, again, I talked a little bit about it two weeks ago. I'll quickly yeah. talk about my feelings like on the other end of it now, having seen the whole series. And I think my general takeaway is that it's it's a series that is so in touch with with the world and its characters and everything that's in it. You know, I think we talked a bit about this on Private Life, this idea of being a fly on the wall and sort of observing things happening. Casually 154 episodes ago. (laughs) Just throwing it out there. I still can't believe I haven't rewatched it. I was meant to rewatch it before our 100th episode Mm. and I just never got up to it. But yeah, it is Mm. what it is. Um, But I wanted to reference that in the sense that you feel like a fly on the wall observing things that are happening. It doesn't feel like the events are being orchestrated or there's like cliffhangers at the end of each episode yeah. to try and keep you hooked. It frankly doesn't care whether you're engaged with it. Um, and that's what I really liked about it. I thought it was, I really appreciated about it. it. It took me a while to binge for that reason is that, you know, it's not trying to fight for your attention in that sense. It's like, here's, here's this, you know, really cruel world that these characters have to navigate through. And if you're interested, that's great. But we're going to tell this story mm-hmm. like in an authentic way that we believe. So I really appreciated that. Again, I thought Amy Adams was fantastic. And I love the characterization specifically, just like the way she moves and the way she goes about her actions, where she holds her phone while driving or does this or that. Um, the film, the, the series goes into, you know, these ideas of, of trauma and, and self-harm and mm-hmm. all of these things. And it's very hard to look at sometimes, but that's something that Amy Adams literally has to wear. So props and production design team for that um really well done and despite what i said about it not really caring about your engagement there is a driving question there are things that are that are trying to keep you engaged in the sense that um you know you have eliza scanlon's character who's sort of like the younger half sister to amy adams and there is this sense of tension of oh you know she's becoming more and more in danger so you know despite what i said the show almost doesn't care whether you're engaged or not there are driving questions there are things that in theory should engage you and i think it all plays a larger part to the themes of of like what i mentioned but more specifically sort of those parental hand-me-downs and we're going to talk about that in the film of the week yeah the influence of a parent on a child and and all of those things but what i loved about it is that there's a twist right at the very very last second of the show which i had to think about because like what is the purpose of having like a completely this changes everything level twist in the last frame of this show. And I think I appreciate it because it doesn't necessarily unwrite everything that's come before it, but it's just that final nail in the coffin for that idea of like parental influence mm. um, and how much you take away from your parents, whether it's a bad childhood or um, it's your genes, even like those kinds of things. And I, I thought it was a very, very clever sort of note to have you constantly thinking about it. Yeah. Leaving away. So, um, Sharp Objects. I thought it was wonderful. I'll write my proper review on Letterboxd soon because i got a lot to say about it, but we won't dwell on it too much, Zeke. Mm. I'll jump ahead. I watched the 
Harry Potter 20th anniversary Return to Hogwarts ah, yes. special. So, have you been reading about this at all? Or? Yeah, so is this in the same vein as the Friends reunion? Absolutely. Okay. Now, I haven't seen the Friends reunion. Um, I imagine it is, yeah, you're right, the same format. They have the, a lot of the cast and, and a lot of the directors as well, which I really appreciated. They come back and it's a lot of interviews between each other, reflecting on the experiences and footage of them walking around like the sets, revisiting mm-hmm. sets and stuff, which are obviously still out there for like tours and whatnot. Um, I really enjoyed it. I really liked it. I think it works so well because, and I don't know if this will work, because I know you're not a huge Harry Potter fan. Not really. Not particularly. Not like, I mean, you know, it's like everything with these really big franchise films. Mm. And this one was, a, you know, obviously the, the Harry Potter franchise for us is very interesting because, you know, it started, um, you know, what was 99 or no, two. I think the first movie was 2001. So it's like, you know, we're, we're only four at the time, but we yep. grew up with these films. I think, by, I think yeah. by the fourth film, we were pretty much relatively on par with the age or at least to an age where it was very comprehensible. If I recall, I think the fourth film is where it starts yeah. to sync up a little bit age wise. Well, I think what's important is that we grew up with, the, even though we weren't the right ages with the characters, like we weren't 11 when Harry was 11, for example, but yeah. The, the whole series has such a tonal shift throughout yeah. where the films get darker and darker and darker. We were able to appreciate that. Yeah. So I think that's like the core um, of it. And I find that really interesting. Um, and I know people who obviously adore this this series. Yeah. Um, and, you know, religiously follow it and all that stuff. But it's like everything, you know, you, everyone's got the, the series that they'll put first. And for me, I've always yeah. been just a... A Star Wars or a Lord of the Rings person first, but um, mm. you know I've watched all the films at least once. Some of the yep. films I've watched a lot more, particularly the earlier ones. I've watched mm. countless times. I think the second film was the one that was the staple in my house. Yeah, I probably watched yeah. that one probably the most by by a mile. Um, and to that point, I will say Chris Columbus, who of course directed the first two. Yeah. really glad he gets a lot of time in the special to talk about his process and, and talk to Dan, you know, Daniel Radcliffe. And mm-hmm. I love it because he's so instrumental in the look and the tone and the visual aesthetic of the entire series. Yeah. I think I've always been a big fan of the first two or three, because particularly the first two, because yep. they work so hard to build a law foundation, yep. which is what yep. really sets the precedent for why the, the later films still work. I think because, if they had all been like the later films, I think the series would would have really suffered overall. Right. Because it becomes a bit more about the plot than the world building. Yeah, and you could compare it to something like the the Chronicles of Narnia series that they mm. tried to kick off. Because obviously, the success of things like Harry Potter did yield like, oh, we'll go into this fantasy and and Lord of the Rings. Where let's go into these fantasy world. And the reason why the second and third Lord of the Rings films work so well is how much time they take in the first one to build the world. Yeah, sure. Um and you know, I, I think that certain films that just go straight jumping into the plot or try to build characters without doing all of the lore building, it does suffer the world because the world yeah. doesn't feel fleshed out. And I mean, I just think of every like fate, like Aragon and stuff that gets <laughs> one movie, and because it, Percy it's, Jackson, <laughs> Percy Jackson, you know, it's like all these other teen, soft teen films that just don't take enough time to build the world. Yeah, yeah. It ends up just becoming mostly just petty teen drama stuff, which doesn't hold a movie on its own. So exactly, which is uh, funny because a big part of Harry Potter, like the around the films four to six era, a lot of it is the teen romance stuff. Yeah, but it only works because you, yeah, you had all that earlier stuff and sort of this ever enclosing threat 
of this outside area and obviously mm. that's when things get real by the end of the fourth film yes so, um, um which is a great midpoint film because yeah, it really it shows the turn the tonal the proper tonal turn i think happens in the fourth film yeah um and the special does break it apart where it's like okay well let's focus on the first two films and then you have you know chris columbus come in and then it's a lot of those cast talking and then they're like all right let's look at free, films three and four so they do break it up in that sense and how it does yeah. get progressively darker and and all of those elements. Yeah. I think, I think it's... so. I mean, obviously, coming back to the actual special, it's was that interesting to explore? Because obviously a lot of these... A lot of the stars of this mm. this particular franchise, not a lot of them have outwardly projecting acting careers now, or at least not as... Well, I think they made a point of talking about how like, a lot of the actors who join in the first place are, are predominantly, like, you know, British actors. And, and I remember my friend Mal saying... Well, this was actually a quote he said from Sir Anthony Hopkins, of all people, yeah. is that we don't have movie stars and British movie stars. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, obviously, I'm making Maggie Smith and stuff like that. Like, they were recognisable names. Yeah, but they were already pre-established prior to them. They're not established, yeah. they're not stars because of the film. Right. Well, exactly, yeah. There were a lot of, yeah, they were mixing the kids with a lot of very talented, very seasonal yeah. actors who we don't see every day. Yeah, you know, which I think, I think is fantastic because you know they're doing their own thing. They love it. Um, but to your point with that, I think my experience with it is solely dependent on the fact that I grew up with these films and love the films, and that's why I ask, you know, how much of a fan you are. Which I think you know is sort of you enjoy the series. You're not like a mega yeah. If fan, like though. someone puts it on, I'll watch yeah, it. Sure, but I'll never be like I've never been someone who owns like like uh, what are those? Uh, what do they call them? The coat the gigs the gowns oh right yeah yeah the like clothes. a house you got, gown yeah you got the Gryffindor wands, scarf <laughs> never I honestly That's thought fair. the coolest part of the earlier movies is how much time they play Quidditch yeah it's the coolest no. part the sport <laughs> and then, Quidditch is a good sport they don't, they don't play it. it in the later ones it's all like sporadic scenes that no. they're like oh yeah they still play this because you're right it's, it becomes so plot based with the looming yeah. danger it's like they don't really have time to <laughs> Let's play play Quidditch. Quidditch. Well, that's then, what's so great about the books because they do have the time. Yeah. They still play Quidditch in the sixth yeah. book. But yeah. Which is why I like... But I also... That's why I find the, the post... I think particularly the five, six, and seven part one, those three films, I actually find... They have really good moments in them. Like, right. normally in the last 20 to 30 minutes, it's like things really pick up and it's like, ah, oh, this is why I'm watching this film. It's particularly the fifth... I can't stand the fifth film. Oh, really? The fifth film is just... It might. It's not a good film. It's, you know. And then the sixth one's okay. Like I have a special place in my heart for the sixth one because that was when I actually they re-released them all in theaters. Yeah. One through five. So I like I was looking stuff up online, all the trailers and everything. I was doing my fan little posters of the caves, and then I would watch them all in theaters. They redropped. So I have a special place for sure six. That was like the height of my Harry Potter fan. Yeah. For me. I, for me, the the sixth one is it only really picks up in that last like thirty minutes. Um, I don't think the, the I don't think the last film should have been split into two parts. I don't think that it really the, the first part. I, I, I loved part one. Yeah. So. This is the thing. It's like yeah. I'll say like this, and then people that are really big Harry Potter like, no, hundred percent, they needed it. And I, I don't think there's a lot of like. And it's such a shame because so much happens in those last two films in right. like sense of. A lot of characters die and stuff. So I kind of get it, but it's like they'll rush certain things or like throw away deaths like that are meant to be meaningful. They'll be like, oh, this character just died. Or this they'll cut to this character and it's dead. And you're like, oh, 
but then they'll spend <laughs> a lot of time on like the the particularly the Ron Hermione Harry Potter love triangle right. stuff. They'll play like twenty minutes of that, and it's like it's so clear that like Harry doesn't see her that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the contrived. jealousy that Ron gets. I mean that yeah, that's its whole thing. We can definitely get into, but I think. The fact that, like, this is the difference in response we have to the movies in particular. Because, keep in mind, this was very much focused on the movies. Mm. Not the books, not other media, which is why, you know, we can get into the controversy with, of course, the author, um, who there was only a little bit of archival footage they throw in there. They very clearly put recorded in 2019 on it. We, we, really? we Yeah, they're like, we swear, we didn't interview for this, we swear. But that being said, I actually didn't think it was that jarring because it's about the movies. It's about the actors and the directors and their experiences on set. So it actually felt natural to me that she wasn't in it that much. I think so, because it sort of comes back to... Although their, their, their style, there is definitely... They have influence on it, but it's like... It's like all the Lord of the Rings films, including The Hobbit, everything. Like, Tolkien never saw any of that stuff. Mm. You know, C.S. Lewis never saw any of those movies, so... It's like all they do when they do like the extended features for Lord of the Rings and talk about Tolkien's influence. They talk about how much they wanted to keep the like legacy. Realize that the, vision. And some yeah. of the best parts are things like they'll then cut to an interview and it's like they got Christopher Lee there, who was alive obviously and reading the books yep. when Tolkien put yep. them out, and he admittedly says he's like, I don't think he would have liked these films. Like I think he honestly would have hated these films. Yeah. Because um, he never wanted them made into films. And it's like, that's nice to have that admit, but it's still Lee's, Christopher Lee's, yeah. you know, late Christopher Lee's love for the f- the books. I forgot he, he died. Yeah. Well, you just ruined lived my forever. day, Zeke. He lived, he lived forever. You <laughs> um, ruined my night, yeah. I'm um, like, I forgot that he died, I'm going to be honest. And he was still acting until like yeah. a year or two before. It until was like, he was 90, he's like Clint Eastwood. They just keep going. Yeah. Um, but like, Jesus. it's crazy because it's like, he would like talk about that. And I found that so interesting because it would like what that shows is that that's an actor having the labor of love. And I'm sure there was plenty of the Harry Potter actors that read some of the books beforehand and wanted to be in these roles solely because of how much they love the books. Yeah, definitely. But it's still like, I mean, particularly, I think particularly with the Potter films is tonally how much they change through the directors and how much there's that directorial influence in there. It's particularly in the first couple, you really see it. Yeah. yeah like in Karan's film. Karan. So Mike, he... I, I, I always forget... I, I know Prison of Aspen's great. Yeah. I've always said it was my favourite, even when I was a kid. But, like, when they start playing footage again of that and they have him sitting there explaining his toys, I'm like... God damn it. Like, Prison Mask is brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Um, so I, I love that whole aspect of it. It's like, it is about the directors and their cast. Yeah. And I thought that was a great idea to focus on that, that relationship. And do they talk about the Dumbledore recasting? Um, they do. Not really, actually. They yeah. talk about him in the sense that they do have a portion of it that's dedicated to all the people that have passed away, um, you know, over the years and that. And, and they talk about him, interestingly enough, even though he died in, like, two thousand and two yeah so yeah which was obviously like really early into the making of the films obviously the first two films yeah well that's it they've in this portion they've obviously you know focused on alan and stuff like that everyone after the films had finished yeah um but yeah anyway but yeah they they sort of talk about it without really talking about which is sure interesting but yeah i i like i said i think i think this really does depend on your investment in the films as as growing up like it does really get you emotional and the conversations they're having i wish 
because it focuses on that the nostalgia pulling in that which works who's the host oh there is no host oh there's no host for this one no okay. oh was, was there a host in the friends one James Corden was the host oh the, probably okay. definitely a good thing that it <laughs> didn't that's what I was worried about oh, yeah. no no it's very it's just sort of like edited in a way where it sort of jumps between different actors and, and different people cool. and like the director and, and talking to the actor and like that being like the just the conversation yeah so yeah I really liked all that the, the one thing I'll say is even though I didn't mind them like doing the whole pull at your heartstrings nostalgia um, thing that they do they sort of, because of that, they sort of skimp over some of the more interesting, darker comments that mm-hmm. are made. Well, not darker, but like, you know, there's points where Emma Watson talks, and she was open about this before. This was a known thing. She wanted to leave halfway through. She wanted to stop doing it around the fourth, fifth film. And in we see on camera in this, her and Rupert talking about that, and him be like, I kind of had the same feeling too. Like, we kind of both were going through these things and not really knowing about it. We weren't old enough to know, mm-hmm. to realize that in each other, we're having these feelings. And then they just kind of cut to the next thing. I'm like, no, hold on that. That's yeah. interesting. These are child stars. Let's explore this. The, the psychology. It's such a... Anyway. <laughs> you're probably never going to see a film series like it again, though. No. And I think no. that that's one of the craziest things that I can like from as a film lover. It's like to think eight films over nearly, you know... Ten years. I guess ten years. Yeah. Is crazy. Like, yeah, when you think about how much you know, and obviously they're just eleven, so it, you know they don't know any better at first. You know, like mm. they're eleven, twelve, and they're just excited because they're in the movies. And you know, I, I know that there was a lot of financial things that they didn't see a lot of their money until they were a lot older. Right, which is probably a legal thing. Yeah, that was course, but it's, yeah. it's and it's interesting just to think about that sort of that age. Uh, the commitment to that because most people you know with tv shows like you know some of the things i've caught in the last week it's like they'll be on it for four or five years and that's as far as they go so 10 years 10 years is a long time yeah no and and like when i hear them say that it's like i completely get that i totally understand that and like that is that is so tough because you would think you probably have a million producers begging you to stay you know and your and your parents probably want what's best for you but ultimately they could land one way or the other and it's a 10-year commitment for a teenager. Yeah. It's very tough. And it's like, yeah, it was like going to summer camp for them. But And they talk about this because obviously one of the main gripes, <clears throat> excuse me, that you would have obviously with Deathly Hallows Part 1 is that it just sort of meanders on this aimless journey. And like, that's, especially in the book, that's the idea is like, you know, they, they are so directionless and they have no idea where to go mm. and they're isolated from their familiar surroundings. Whereas like, it's the first film that doesn't, almost entirely take place in the castle and as actors the three of them would talk about that being like it was such a different experience and it was almost i don't want to use the word depressing but like it was it was a big change for them and again they touch on it for the films like oh we gotta edit to the next cut to the next thing and it's like i'm sure it's out there i'm sure if i google it yeah i could find them talking about it so maybe it's not fair for me to make that criticism um in the same way that i didn't get a lot out of it in terms of production value mm. or, or not i should clarify like in terms of me watching be like i want to i want to learn about the the cinematography yeah. or the productions I, I got way more out of the dvd bonus features so just just go to those for the individual film so maybe i'm being a little unfair in those areas it's still fun if you like harry potter definitely watch it mm-hmm. it's a great time it'll get you emotional all of that jazz 
Zeke, what have you been watching in the last yeah, week? Yeah, so I've predominantly only caught series in the last week. Um, obviously, I think I touched on, I finished the first season of The Witcher a couple of weeks ago. So I'll start with a film. So obviously I've transitioned now and I've just started watching the second season of The Witcher. But mm. there was a interim Netflix-released animation film called The Witcher Nightmare of the Wolf. Yes, we actually read that out on one of our Coming Soon to Cinema segments. Yeah. So um, it's a really interesting one because obviously this is a... I've sort of seen this before. It's the same sort of thing they did when... um, the closest thing I can think of off the top of my head is actually in Assassin's Creed and the conclusion yeah. to the Ezio trilogy. If you bought the special edition, you got a animated uh, DVD right, okay. with sort of the epilogue to Ezio's life. Um, I remember they did a live action 30 minute thing for yeah. AC2, I think. So they did some live action, cool. but when they got to Revelations, right, they, did, the they did an animation one like this one, which was basically the epilogue. So we saw how Ezio actually died. Uh, um, okay. And sort of how his life with Sophia, and he has like one last sort of assassin hurrah. And I've then never seen this. It's quite great. Um, yeah. Very, like, you know, and basically it was just served as an epilogue. And I've, I've seen yeah. little things like video games, sort of like these are the... Um, things you should do before playing the game. I know Halo's just released its sixth game, Infinite. Yeah, so, Halo Infinite's out. Um, it's a big deal. And it's getting a lot of praise, which is great. Um, but, uh, you know, they released like Forward Unto Dawn when the fourth one came out, and Nightfall when, which wasn't very good, but um, <laughs> Forward Unto Dawn was good. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's like, they're very like, oh, before you engage in this piece of media, you have to do this piece of it. It's almost like a little bit of homework. So yeah. this is an 83 minute 2021 uh, release, which I actually quite enjoyed. Is yeah. this homework to anything in particular? Yeah. Or? So it's actually, obviously it's, you do actually, I was recommended and can see why already that uh. you, you should watch this post season one, pre season two. So it really isn't a transitioning uh, thing because basically it gives you a lot of backstory to how witches are created. Mm, okay sort of what led to their downfall and their extinction or their almost extinction. Spoiler alert? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> not really. It's, okay. it's, it's pretty widely I have no idea. Um, yeah. Like, if you watch the first season, you know that there's not many of them left. Okay, yep, yep, yep. But you don't really know why there's not gotcha. left. Gotcha. But then there's a, the main character in the animated one is in the second season, but has no backstory in the first season of the show. Mm. But require... If you watch this, you will then know sort of his motions and sins. you get more of an insight yeah yep. it's sort of like the other thing i watched this week oh. uh, cobra kai season four tie back to that really enjoyable only 83 minutes tight yep. fun time um, yeah love a bit of anime occasionally um but you don't want to say tight fun time in other contexts <laughs> maybe you do um, i don't know yeah of course um <laughs> whatever whatever you're into but <laughs> exactly <laughs> um but yeah, I watched, obviously you talked about it last week of the show, it was brand new, released New Year's Eve, watched it all in a day. So there you go. I think that might be, there's four seasons of that show. Yeah. That might be one of the easiest watching addictive shows I've ever watched. Because mm. I haven't pumped out a season of a show comfortably like I have for that. The last two seasons, because I've watched the last two seasons co-current with the show. Yeah. It's just... And we've talked, like, I've talked about it with, like, friends of the show off the air. It's because they've got just great hooks at the end of every episode. Okay. Like, they're polar opposite of sharp objects. Perfect (laughs) bait um, into every episode. And 
it just keeps you wanting to watch war and next thing you know it's done this was probably in my opinion the strongest acting season i think okay and story wise so previous seasons were very they still loved that obviously it maintains that hokey 80s aesthetic to an extent um this one definitely felt the most serious obviously it's getting to a point where it's you know we're talking about with the harry potter cast how they 10 years of, of shooting so you know 11 years altogether probably with their the working on it yeah around the, the promotional side and it's like these guys have now been on the show now for four years mm. and it's like for a lot of them the actors they were nobody act no name actors coming into this show very much cast because of honestly mostly due to their athletic ability and their martial arts yeah which is awesome yeah and some of them obviously are a lot stronger than others but this season i think a lot of them really get really strong like you're starting to really grow and find their feet as actors the earlier seasons you can kind of look back on and be like yeah they're just like you know sort of like the way you'd watch an 80s teenager film they're not the strongest they're not the they're not the worst but they give them a pass sort of thing yeah, because obviously then it's compensated by the cool action sequences and you're like, ah. And then the older cast members who, although they were never like Oscar-winning actors, they still had to act, you know? Right. And it also keeps itself... It's something that that's, that we would talk about with Spider-Man. The best part about the earlier seasons in the show is the stakes are so small. Right. You know, it's about... They learn karate to get back at the bullies in the school. It's got that sense of innocence there, whereas... The fourth season does have still that hokey, like, but it's more a sense The whole of, world's going to explode. There's particular <laughs> storylines and threads that run through this season with the younger cast members and talking about that uh, generational violence that mm. comes through families. And, and obviously there's a huge emphasis on father figures in the show or perennial figures and how a lot of these teenagers either have very poor relationships or relationships they need to fix with central characters of the show. They're perennial figures or they don't have them, they're completely absent and need to pursue them. And this season, in my opinion, it actually had some really hefty like heart moments in its last three or four episodes. It sort of, at the first two or three, was sort of like, more like, more of what I'd seen. I was like, oh, okay, another fun, cool season. Yep. It takes a turn by about episode five. It becomes very real. And you start to see, because obviously now they're shifting into their final year of high school. It's mm, like they're on okay. their way out. So it's that, what comes next sort of thing. And I think there is a lot more substance to the show in, in this season, like because of all of everything that's so tied together. It's such a neat show, I think. Mm. And it gets better every season. And it honestly does have rewatchability because prior to watching this, I did revisit latter seasons and found myself casually watching six, seven episodes without even thinking about right, it. Right, yeah just the most binge and boy thing. those like the climactic fights at the end do they destroy those 80s version film they're just um the choreography is just dazzling you know yeah. so same sort of reason why you like the john wick stuff you know it's like you have to just admire the the movement and fluidity yeah of the action yeah and how much all of these actors must have put ridiculous effort into learning these these skills and it's it really gives them a lot of props but uh, i was a big fan of this this season it's it's not going to be like on your like mind manipulation game level of something like a succession i imagine or westworld but if you're looking for that 
really easy to watch but still has that stakes and honestly that heart in there it's it's got that balance i think yeah Yeah. at the end it just sounds entertaining that's the main thing and that's it it's like sometimes you honestly there is i give props to something that can just be popcorn entertaining the thing that you can bring four or five friends over and watch and just be like i'm actually getting invested in this and having a really good time like it's not i'm not having to sit here and create you know like we're going to talk about in the film of the week how in depth and the layers and intricacies of it Mm. and that's fantastic and it's great to have that thought provoking but you also do want the times where you can go home crack a couple beers and just watch some fun beers eh? (laughs) and i I think what the the show's earlier seasons knew what it was like and is only now started to take a shift more to okay there is a little bit more substance not anything too like like you know oh we're trying too much with a very narrow scope still keeping the stakes you know to a degree relatively small Mm. it's still yeah so big props um, very nice with 100 percent. i think it's my favorite season of the show um but i think that might be it has been an exponential curve with the show i think hasn't dipped and they've already got and they've already been greenlit for their fifth and final season which all ending which will come out in like two weeks. <laughs> it always feels like these come out so quickly, does it? Oh, they come out every year. They've come out once a year. Okay. So right. I mean, and this so this uh, time next this stage, year, yeah, that's... Five, season five will be out, and then yeah, that'll be it. I'm and used I to shows taking happily get the box set. Probably out. be dawning some Cobra Kai merch. Let's be real. Well, they'll they definitely have a box set of Cobra Kai with all the Karate Kids and. They will oh, surely I, do the whole thing. I honestly think, and before the fifth season, I will definitely get all those Karate Kid films out the way because I feel like I owe. Those yeah, at this point, ones. it's so weird you haven't just watched the original you, film at this point. You don't need to. That's the best part. <laughs> it's like that's the thing because it's like whenever they need like the substance of yeah. like the earlier, they just cut in. Into I literally, I li- I'm staring at it right now. Well, I got, I got the VHSs there. I got real VHSs, and on top of it, I've got like the fake VHSs that have Blu-ray disc in yeah. them. And I got it there, the Karate Kid on Blu-ray. Yeah. So. They're on Netflix. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I have no excuse. I was honestly going to do it this week, and then I was like, well, maybe I'll just watch the actual show. And then <laughs> I watched it. Like, no, um, that's fair enough. If, if it's out, it's out. You got um, Did you catch anything it. else? Or? I, I've caught a few things. Okay. I'll no, oh, throw it back to me. Yeah, We're, we're doing good on, on recent stuff. Yeah. Which I like. We're catching a lot of stuff that's come out in the last week, including, for myself, Death to 2021. <laughs> Which, oh God. I okay. going to, but after your short review. Yeah, of- no. So I'll, I'll say this, because I know a lot of people didn't even like the original, The Death of 2020, which is sort of a you know, fun mockumentary. Oh, let's make fun of the absurdity of the last year with everything that's happened. Ooh, and stupid. Yeah, well, th- this is it. If you didn't like it, you're going to loathe this one. Because there's no content. Like, yeah, a few... Like, yeah, it's been a... You could argue it's been a crappy... But it's like the level of crappy that the year 2020 was on like a global scale hmm. like it was just like so renowned like it, it, it was a year to have lived through it generally was and you look at something like 2021 was like okay well politically they put biden in and he's spoken like maybe five times in the whole year and um oh look there's mice in australia that are like taking over the shed oh spooky it's like there's no content there was no material for them to make jokes about most of the material is not relevant to the year 2021. Like, they make a Bridgerton joke and a, and a Squid Game joke. But it's like, that's just making jokes about new shows. That's so funny. You could do that every year. They make fun of the Oscars it. again. It's like you did that last year. Weird to think I watched Bridgerton at the start of the year. 
weird. What a wacky year 2021 was. Yeah, I just, I could not. The, literally the one time I laughed in this the entire 60-minute run, which was still a, a, a horrid 60-minute. And they bring a lot of the same, like, people back, the talking heads. Yeah. And they're just, they're just not funny. I'm sorry. It's like, it's the same joke over and over mm. again. It's ridiculous. The one time I laughed was, like, the voiceover talking about Prince Philip. The one, oh, let me get the quote. After the interview, Prince Philip withdraws from public life permanently by dying. That was the one time I laughed. I was like, oh, that's funny. Because it comes out of nowhere. It's like, oh, yeah, he did die. Did you see? Did you hear that like BBC radio thing where it's like dubstep? It's like, and then it cuts off and it's like, Buckingham Palace wants to announce the death of Prince Philip. And it goes back there. It's so not. funny. It, it's amazing. I need to send it to you. No, I'm not. <laughs> That's my review. So of, not, not a lot of fun. No. Oh, it was terrible. I gave it one star. Okay. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. There's no reason to exist. And if they do one next year, I'm going to actually hurt myself. Um, calm down. It's all right, guys. <laughs> uh, the other one I'll talk about in terms of recently, and I can't believe I've left it this long. We're 35 minutes into the show, and I haven't talked about licorice pizza yet. No. Talk, so a licorice pizza last week. Just casually. So that everyone cas- but me, apparently. Oh, well, look. Brutal. We're, we're going to do it for the podcast soon, I imagine. We'll definitely cop it. I, yeah. need, I need to see it again because I sort of leaned on the... I didn't think it was a masterpiece side of things. Mm. It's excellent. It is an excellent film. It's PTA doing PTA. Um, I still think Punch Drunk Love is my personal favorite film okay. of his. Um, I'll say this, because I walked out of it the same way I walked out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when we first saw it a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, and that's that, that's a film that I needed time with. Like That has since become one of my favorite Tarantino yeah. films. But it took a long time for me to get to that. So I really needed to understand the whole aspect of like the Hangout film, the fact there's very there's a very thin plot, if any, and and frankly, Licorice Pizza sort of has a very similar vibe. It, you know, it, it takes place sort of in a similar area. It's about showbiz in a lot of ways. You know, it's a period piece, and it's about the visuals and the aesthetic of it. Um, of course, it's not directly about you know. Um, you know, Cliff Booth and, and all of that. It's yeah. It's more, you know, it's about the romance between these two kids. Well, one's 25, one's 15. They sort of play with that. I can see people walking out of this being... Like, there there are some weird jokes. I'm not going to lie. There is a joke, like, at the expense of, like, an Asian accent that's done a few times that I just didn't get. I was like, okay. this just seems, like, racy for the sake of it. Like, I, did, I didn't get the joke, necessarily. So there's a few things in there like that, you know, if, if, if that bothers you. Um, but to lean back from it, I just, I think the film is, it's so great from a presentational standpoint. I think the two actors, so Cooper Hoffman and Alana, I think it's Alana Haim. I think that's how you pronounce it. H-A-I-M. They're absolutely fantastic together. I would love to see them both get Oscar noms. I think maybe she's in for a chance, but I would, I mean, either way, I'd love to see them both. They're they're fantastic. Their chemistry is just awesome. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't want to spoil too much about it, um, I was going to say plot-wise, but again, it's a pretty thin plot. It feels like a lot of scenarios. Like, okay, we've established these two characters, the world they're in. Now let's, like, throw a bunch of stuff at the wall. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, what if, you know, oh, two two cops burst into the arcade and, and they arrest, they arrest, um, what's the character's name? It's, sorry, it's been, like, over a week since I've seen it. Well, Cooper Hoffman's character. It's like, oh, they arrested him. What happens next? All right, now that's kind of done. Okay, now this is the next night. What if they do this? What if there's like a, a nationwide gas shortage? Now what happens next? Mm. There's a lot of that kind of storytelling 
which again is a little similar one to put a time in Hollywood yeah. where things sort of just happen and you kind of go with it. So I was a little thrown off by that whole aspect of it. Again, I won't spoil it, but there's a great, great, great scene involving reversing a truck, which is just probably my favorite scene of the year in terms of, of cinematic experiences. Um, but I think the overall package, I think it left a little to be desired. Okay. I kind of finished it being like, I was kind of expecting more out mm-hmm. of this. But again, I think it. I think I need more time with it. I think it's as simple as that. You need to mull over it. Exactly. Like a licorice exactly. pizza. Exa- exactly. Like, what the hell is a licorice pizza? <laughs> um, but yeah. No, I think it's great. It's it, it, You know, it's definitely... It's not 20, death to 2021. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of lot of artistry in there. It's beautiful to look at. The production design's spot on. I just think... I just wonder what the script could have been. Cool. And I need to digest what it actually is. So that, that's, that's all I'm going to say for now. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll get into it in a couple of weeks or so. Yeah. But yeah. So the only other film I've seen this week comes from Mr. Sean Baker, mm-hmm. which I don't know. How are you feeling? Should we talk about this in the next half of the show? Or Yeah, we can talk about it. Would you like to touch on it? Do you only really want to touch on its director points? Um, you want to just give a general consensus here? Tardy, sure, yeah. sure. So I'll, I'll pitch it essentially. Um, I'm guessing you didn't have time to catch it in the last Did week. not, unfortunately. No. So it actually, we predicted it. It actually is SBS on demand for free. So you can just go on and watch it for free with a couple of ads here and there. Um, so it's beautiful. And I know I didn't have time to watch uh, some of his other films. He did Starlet as well, the 2012 film, which I didn't realize until earlier today is on YouTube. You can just watch it. I was like, damn it. If I knew that two days ago, I would have snuck it in. But anyway, maybe next week. You know, yes. if, if, if perhaps our Sean Baker discussion continues, you never know. But my consensus on Tangerine, um, I very much enjoyed it. It's the very famous Sean Baker all shot on an iPhone 5S movie, which I think actually works wonderfully for it because mm-hmm. it does add to this like visual aesthetic and like the the very vibrant, overly saturated like yellows and reds and oranges and all of that. It just like creates such a a beautiful look. Mm. Um, it comes with the naturalistic performances you sort of expect if you've watched the Florida Project. You kind of know what to expect from yeah. that. Mixing seasoned actors with you know relatively new newbies. You know, people who aren't in the film industry necessarily or are trying to break into the film industry, and this is sort of the way they went about doing it, which is really respectful. But it ultimately, again, it's very slice of life. It sort of focuses on a bunch of different subcultures around LA. We sort of look at it through the lens of these two African American transgender um, sex workers. Okay. And sort of the life that they go for. And they're very naturalistic. Look at it. Um, which a fantastic ending as well, which I won't get into, but. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, I really enjoyed. I, I had nothing really to critique about. It. I thought it was wonderful. But yeah, we'll talk more about the directorial side of it very soon. Very spicy. Yeah. Well, the only other two things I'll do to quickly wrap up this yep. this part of the show is don't really have too much to say. My first film of 2022 was always be my be your maybe was it always be my maybe, which was a I've seen this. I've seen this. A lot of charm in this film. Yeah. Um, I got yeah. really excited. Were, <laughs> yelling, yeah. I've seen this. <laughs> you gave it two and a half stars. So, um, yeah, yeah, I look, did. Luke, yeah. Luke, seldom lukewarm film. Like it was a charming enough film. Obviously, it's got. Um, uh, Let's take a look. Randall Park in it. And Ali, Ali Wong. Wong yeah. And Keanu Reeves is in it. <laughs> he's so funny in it. He's just. I think that's was, the best part of the movie. Is yeah. Is his like self awareness. And obviously, with Matrix Four coming out, I actually did rewatch Matrix. It was on the telly and I watched it with my mum nice. the other night because it's played. They played Matrix, The Matrix, like three times on go. Like wow. by the way, Channel Ninety Nine, 
Not everyone wants to watch The Matrix. Man, they really like that red pill over on Go. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You're just making me think I'm living in it more. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, look, it was a fine film. It was like one of those films you you put on and you're like, that was all right. And then you just keep moving on with your life. The other thing I watched was I did touch on um, Disney Plus with Hawkeye. Yes, yes. In the post-Christmas, pre-New Year's Eve space of time. Um, and I really actually enjoyed it. I had a lot to like about Steinfeld's performance and I don't really have too much more to add to what you talked about on the show last week. Right. Um, yeah, it's a really quaint, I actually agree with you. I think this would have been a really fun thing if they had actually pushed it as a Christmas film. Right. Yeah. And pushed that campaign, but obviously with the Spider-Man, just the way the scheduling worked, it was very clear this was the only way to get this out and yield probably a positive financial pool because obviously this had come out it's taking money away from spider-man yeah and they probably would end up losing more money than making so and i I don't want to clarify this you maybe didn't listen to the last week it's not for a lack of content the the reason i and i imagine you agree with me is because of like the tone and the fun of it it works as like a family let's sit down on the couch and watch this together and have a laugh like it works as that i definitely think the only thing i would debate is i do think they okay. do address the ronan stuff quite a bit it's quite a big through line of okay. the show and i think his what i love about this film is oh this series is it's really is uh although it is like a real steinfeld like passing of the torch i 100 percent agree yep i love the attention renner gets in this um and they really address a lot of the events of particularly um you know infinity war Sorry, right, he's like big, he's, big yeah, end game. game. He's a Ronin. Um, That's but particularly I, I, stuff with Black Widow, like the yep. post, the PTSD. I love the the scars that he has in it. I mm-hmm. love that they really do basically say he is just a human, like a very skilled yeah. human yeah. being um, with no heightened abilities or anything like special powers and. I I think that's why I honestly think out of the four series that came out for me i think that's the one i might have enjoyed the most because of Mm. it had a uniqueness a consistency to it um it had a groundedness and believability to it i think some of the camera work they did in it was inventive compared to the car the car um that is unbelievably great great. um there's a lot to like i love the dynamic um, yeah, it's not annoying. It's like Baffo's humor, but it's fun. They actually, were, the chemistry is good. Yeah, well, them. she's playing what she's played in so many other roles, right? Um, which was weird when I, you know, revisiting Begin Again, and she's kind of yeah, she's in Begin way Again, more, yeah, way more grounded <laughs> in that. Like she's kind of like the opposite um, for at least half the film, but like yeah. she does carry that that cute, per, like perky, fun humor, um, while still having that like undertone of serious i like what they did with florence Pugh in it um yeah yeah spoiler <laughs> oh at this point you know, she know. was in the black they, they promote they so. promoted it like yeah. they promoted her written and even um, kingpin and stuff like at this point they're not spoilers i what did you think of kim because i just i did not like him at all in i think Hawkeye. that's not the last time you're gonna be seeing him i guess not i just um, i thought he was very not intimidating <laughs> That's the P. That's the P. See, this is the thing, though. Yeah, yeah. I 100% back what I was saying. Yeah. Like, this is the... They're pushing... I liked... One thing that I liked about Spider-Man was at least it felt like they were starting to maybe push a little bit more violent. Like, they're starting to move away from PG-13 maybe into M. 
but they're not going MA, which is what Daredevil was. Yeah. And I did read, difference. I don't know if this is true or not. I did read, apparently they are going to do Deadpool 3 as part of the MCU with an R rating. Okay. I've heard that that is apparently going out. It'll be interesting to see if they actually do because, yeah. um, to be honest, yeah, that Kingpin was definitely a PG version yeah. of the one that he was in. And that's a shame because that, he, I think his performance is still there. His tone, the way the cast... It's a great casting. And if you watch... If you ever get around to Daredevil, you'll see... Sure, yeah. I mean, I have a reason That's the to problem. Now. Yeah. Because... And I think that's why things like John Bernthal's statement of... If you're bringing Punisher back, he has to be the Punisher from that show. Like, yeah. he can't be this watered down, just for teens version. Because that's... There's just certain characters that just can't transition over. Or be... Re- At least if you're going to, like you know, try and bring them in, you've got to bring them in on that sort of term. Yeah. Um, so I did. I actually really liked the show. I, I, I always liked Jeremy Renner and I like Hawkeye. So it was a lot of fun mm-hmm. for me. And yeah, I think it would have really benefited from being a Christmas release. Even if it was like, I don't know, if they cut it down to maybe like th- three hours and they like just released it as three episodes in a cinema or something like that. I don't know. Like... Something that really pushes it more for its its Christmas aesthetic. Um, yeah. See, I don't even know if it needed a theatrical release. Just make it like a two-hour film on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Like Soul. Soul was straight to Disney+, Plus last year. Yeah. I, I think it really... Uh, the only uh, reason I would argue against this is because like, the show does like almost every teaser to each episode is like a reintroduction of a character. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, here's the backstory to this character. Here's the Kate Bishop backstory. Here's the Florence Pugh like, yeah, context. Yeah, there's, there's just enough content in there like like you said yeah. i don't think that there's any um yeah the, the, there is six hours worth of content yeah. or like it doesn't five, yeah it doesn't hours. drag like but it's it so the episode i think like, why i'm like sitting there and being like i think this was the one i enjoyed the most out of all four of them maybe because you know it for once didn't have ridiculously high stakes i thought yeah. falcon and winter soldier was the weakest because it was trying to be it was just so generic and so nothing really yeah um Apart from that Zemo dance. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> it's Zemo like dance. Loki grew on you, but I, I do think it has quite... A, it has moments where it's actually quite weak. Um, yeah, and Lo- Loki's like... When you look back on Loki, you're like, yeah, well, that was a really great experience. And I feel like if you actually sit down and watch it again, yeah, you're like, ah, it's pretty rough. Some got some got good moments, like good collective moments, but nothing like... I think... And then... WandaVision's great for the first five or six episodes. Yeah, that's still my favourite, personally. But and I just, but I think it just falls apart in the last that last episode, especially. Yeah, strong series, but it it broke it broke its leg while landing the yeah. <laughs> the stunt. And it's that's just like such a contrived villain for no real reason. Like the whole white vision thing, I'm still not getting over that. I still think that's so stupid. <laughs> it's like <laughs> death means nothing. Death means um, nothing. In these but shows, yeah, that is it. what I caught. So pretty much exactly. Listen to Jake's discussion last week. <laughs> it covers the bases. Yeah, it's I like, like putting yeah. commas quotation commas. <laughs> Jake, twenty twenty one. God, we're in twenty twenty two now, aren't yeah. we? I have Jesus to time code God. you. I know in my APA reference. <laughs> you know, I you know I did that. I did a reference to my Harry Potter um, letterbox review. Love I actually it. quoted. Yeah, I did like a you quote. Chicago. I don't, actually know it was the one the website gave me. It's like if you want to reference this, copy and paste it. So okay. I'll just do that. I don't have time to <laughs> okay. figure out which one is. I haven't been a uni in two or three years. I'm not doing referencing. Are you kidding me? Beautiful. Well, 
Then, Jake, do you, I don't yep. think you have anything to add in your career section, do you? No, no, no. Next week, I might have a few fun things to talk about. But That's exciting. Not, not yet. So it's time to move into our 31st Director's Corner. But, Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? We're talking about Sean Baker, of course. We're doing the Florida Project. Thank you very much. You're not welcome. The man who lives in here gets arrested a lot. These are the rooms we're not supposed to go in. But let's go anyway. Could you give us some change, please? The doctor said we have asthma and we gotta eat ice cream yeah. right away. Here you go. Hey, Lee, got a situation here. Open up. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We're trying to get it back alive. Water blooms thrown at tourists. Boobies! Boobies! I failed as a mother, Moni. Yeah, Mom, you're a disgrace. New job? Yeah. If you're working, who's looking after money? You're not my father. I don't want to be your you father. You can't treat me like this. You don't think everybody knows what's up, Haley? Everybody. She's about to cry. I can always tell when adults are about to cry. Why is my mommy out? They're just talking. they got to figure something out. of a precocious six-year-old and her ragtag group of friends whose summer break is filled with childhood wonder, possibility and a sense of adventure while the adults around them struggle with hard economic times. <laughs> you added economic in there. Boom. Ten dollar word. Ten dollar word. I like um, it. No, it's, it's, it's true. Well, socially, economically, there's a, lot, there's a lot to get into. The Florida Project, Zeke. Yes. I wish I, I should have gone back and recorded it, but... um. We both talked about this film separately throughout the podcast. I mean, you might have talked about it when uh, we got back from our like big. Was it the COVID break? We had a few weeks of pre-records. I believe so. Yeah, we came back. We came back. Like, episode, like, God, I'm like sixty-six, maybe. Mm. Hell or high water. That's my guess. Is when you first talked about this Bang film. film. And then I can't remember when I, I saw this film for the first time a few months ago, maybe. Mm. So it wasn't that long ago yes. that I talked about it. But it doesn't matter. We're going to give our full rewatch impressions, thoughts on the Florida Project. Zeke, what's with this film? What's this film is fascinating, <laughs> isn't it? And, it, you know, it's, it's funny to be doing this at the back end of the third year of this show. Because, you know, it almost yeah. bookmarks a, a certain episode that happened earlier in the year when we did uh, Minari. Right, and sort of childhood okay. perspective, and we sort of discussed how it's implicated through that film. Um, I think this film takes it to that step further. Mm. Um, you know, we're going to talk about the cinematography between Tangerine and and, and this film in particular, and and yeah. I, I think this film, uh, I you know, obviously read up a lot on particularly influences for this film, and it okay. obviously it really intrigued me the premise of and you're kind of hooked within the opening 10 minutes as you sort of gauge this sort of realistic, 
and sort of fascinating dynamic of first world mm. culture, particularly American culture. But I do think in Australia, this shift is happening too. Um, and people are just sort of not oblivious to it, but are pretending like it's not there. This distinct difference between the, the sort of top 1% and sort of the people barely clinging on sort right. of dynamic obviously this mot- this is set in a in a motel just out just uh, not too far away from Disney World mm, and yep. there's a collection of lower socioeconomic people that can't afford to live really anywhere else so their home isn't really their home because they're always constantly on the back foot it's ironic I can hear a helicopter above us right now mm. you hear a lot of that in this film <laughs> yeah um, constantly on the on that sort of back foot just getting by and sort of the relationship between our very young I think she's not a teen mum but she clearly was a teen mum yeah um, I was thinking maybe she might mid 20s I would say early mid 20s potentially mum. Mooney's 6 so I think she actually might turn 7 in the movie I, I should clarify I had time to rewatch the first like hour. Yeah. So the the, the I guess like the last thirty minutes has been. Mm-hmm. I remember she does have her birthday to celebrate her birthday, and I remember a lot of the beats that lead to the ending, of course. Mm. And this um, is predominantly yeah. told from obviously Mooney's perspective, the six slash seven year old child, and yep. sort of basically the walks that fine line between um, sort of the wonderment of a child, and that's juxtaposed with sort of the economic situation socioeconomic situation her and her mother her very very young mother mm-hmm. and you know sort of to a some extent unstable mother um sort of make their way through life and their dynamic and relationship and sort of the the you know it's great you brought up private life in the first part of the show because mm-hmm. there's that observational side of it yeah we can see this um the, the the characters we find ourselves actually most immersed in or relatable is probably Defoe's character. And to an extent, we are very much just still a silent observer. Um, and I, I, I think I definitely can see why Defoe got the most recog- like that sort of actoral recognition right. there. His character... Well, I think it was just a case of him being the biggest name because I would argue... True. I would make the case that Brooklyn Prince... She's fucking phenomenal She's crazy. in this. I mean, they, they all are. The, the cast is fantastic. Yeah. We're like, to your point. Of so this... nice seeing all three of the kids, the three main kids. Well, that's like it. The premiere. You know, oh, oh like the premiere. Chatting it, like chatting. That's, that's like cute. they get asked what what they thought the film was about, and they sort of have that because our big influence was obviously um, Baker's relation to the Little Rascals growing up with that. Right. Um, and they sort of talk about oh, it's about friendship and sort of the wonderment of yep. being a child. Yep. yep. And they're like still kind of profound for a child. But oh, like... definitely. Well, well, this comes back to the point because yeah, you talk and I agree with you for the ninety-nine percent of the part that this is a very observational film that we're looking at this from afar. That this is Sean Baker putting a telescope, you know, to the other or the cinema of the other, if you will. And we're going to talk about just how amazing he is at capturing that. But for me, this felt like an observational slice of life film until the very, very last few minutes. And at that point, well, it's funny, the kids do say that it's about friendship. And for me, without getting into what specifically happens, we'll get into it obviously later in the show, but the ending is probably one of the most impactful endings of any film I've ever seen. And it's because of that complete just switch where, oh, this is not an observational film anymore. Like, this is 
ripping my heart out like this yeah. is so ingrained and I, you know i'm watching this film looking back to my own child of like i remember you know being at the back of like my avua's house throwing lemons with my, me and my cousins were throwing lemons at the next door neighbor's house and then she comes down and got pissed off at us and there's not a care in the world yeah. you do not care yeah. and now i watched this film as an adult being like oh god if that was them spitting on my car i'd throw a brick at them like i i see it from both sides mm. but the ending it just has that switch when it everything clicks and it falls in. and tangerine has a very excellent ending as well where you know oh well, you know this is what this is about this is what this film and it's like oh mm. no 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 wait this is what it's about and it's always great that a script can do that yeah but for me it's like it's the performance it's brooklyn price's performance in that last couple minutes that yeah just i think agonizing. It, what, what i like about this film is is what it does with what he does with the camera like his decisions to make it shot in that peanut style where mm. all of the the perennial figures from you know Brooklyn Price Mooney's characters often we're just on her face while these heavy-handed conversations are happening between mm. um, you know Haley trying to pay the rent and trying to like sort of screw you know going sc- you know, to screw Defoe out of it or like right. swerve away out it's of very, it very uh, ETsque you know yeah. the low framing cut the parents off and and it's like obviously in et it has that you know it's trying to show that that disconnect between like you know sort of elliot and his parents and there's that sense of wonder and belief there but in this it's very much just sort of like you know the heavy-handed conversations that might have been happening in front of you as a child that you're not fully comprehending yeah and you know there are times where it's it becomes very clear that the relationship mooney has with Haley is not one of a mother and daughter, but more of an older sister and a younger sister. Yeah, yeah. And that becomes very apparent when the mirroring of behaviour is not something from a paternal, I'm trying to live up to my parents' sort of values and morals and and rules that they're putting forward, but more like I see her as really cool and I want to be like her. And that's when, from an observational point of view... Defoe definitely becomes, for the most part, offers us, he's the catalyst for us as the audience, at least. Like, the way he sort of interacts with them and sort of sort of intervenes, but still has the soft side. Like, there's that point where, like you said, it's like they're spitting on my car, I'd want to throw a brick at them. And it's like, <laughs> it's like Def- Defoe is not, like, always nice to them. Like No, he's this- very firm, you know, essentially a boss. Obviously, he's like, you know, housekeeping them and it's his res- he he understands and accepts his responsibility yeah in that role to be firm but to be to understanding and caring the yeah. fact that you he's, know when, when he sends them over to the other motel and they won't give the discount he tries to cover that disc he tries to solve that situation because yeah. he feels he kind of feels like a parent to the whole community yeah he's not the teacher in breakfast club right <laughs> authoritarian figure that we make fun of and is completely disconnected from the realities of the characters we're following. It's, yeah. He's, and I love that balance he walks between like protecting them from like pedophiles coming and, yep. and like preying on the kids, you know, there's that, but still being willing to be like, that's not good enough. You need to be setting right precedence for your kid. And I think he really helps expose the clear problematic relationship these two have. And, sort of this cycle of this gener this generational cycle of, of socioeconomic depression and, and the effects it has. You know, it's it's really interesting that, you know, a lot of these films start this conversation point in places, mostly predominantly in America, but we're not 
immune to it here in Australia too. We have the exact same problems and if anything, that's one of those silent benefits to things like Animal Kingdom. They talk about that mm. generational problem. Of course, it's still kind of, unfortunately, it's hidden under the, the crime sort of precedent, but it's like, the yeah. fact is, it's like that lower socioeconomic problem still exists, you know, here in in Perth or across, you know, the western suburbs of Sydney. It's like, it's very clear that there are people that are told that they're trash and they belong at the bottom of the barrel and they think that's all they're capable of because they're never actually allowed to really get past that. And then they all pass a point without, if the cycle's not broken, that they're not irredeemable, but there's just no way they're going to find themselves off the bottom because we sort of see how Haley tries to get by to make Mm. the rent and she's doing it for her daughter, but she's obviously going about it in you know unethical ways or immoral ways or but she also doesn't get the option to really break that cycle well i think it's interesting because the way i see it this film very much portrays this like this is a way of life for for these people that we you know may or may not understand that way of life and it's like you know we both grew up in households and and you know we're not living day to day at the motel but it's like i think the juxtaposition there that's happening is yeah you have these people that you know, it's interesting because they don't overtly talk about that. Like, okay, well, why don't they just go and, and get this job here? What What is the out mm. for them? And it's like, I don't think they're looking for a way out. And th- there's an anger and aggression that they have to people that, you know, let's say above them in the sense that, you know, we see the helicopters constantly flying around. And what is her response to the helicopter? You know, flip them off as they come past. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an aggression there, but it's just the part of a, a way of their life is that this is just how it is. Mm. And looking at it from a location standpoint particularly through the eyes of Mooney and, and the other kids where for them it's just a colorful playground and i think the film's progression throughout is is slowly making those you know adult issues you know you know trying to pay the rent and eventually they try and take Mooney away from her like those things seek more into the the fantasy that is you know very vibrant pinks and yellows and all of that that surround the motel and the fact that the kids this is a playground this is all silly this is fun they can screw yeah. with people they can shut the power off they can do whatever they want and they're not going to get any real you know repercussions yeah and I think that's what's so genius about it is just the slow seeping in of those issues and to me it's about the barrier between parent and child and like you said they have more of a sisterly relationship than a mother-daughter relationship and it's because there's no like no one's telling the other off. They're sort of together, almost rolling together in the mud. You know, when they go to the um, the deli and they kind of want yeah. to screw with, I'll get her name, but with Ashley, obviously they've got a bit of a few going on and she's encouraging her daughter to order as much food as possible. It's all part of this wider feud, you know, to get at her. Like, I'm going to wreck her day. And then what happens is the inverse where later, the one thing I love is when she's trying to piss her off, she starts kicking the floor to like bother her and all she ends up doing is waking up her daughter in the other room and it's like, i mean that's a perfect juxtaposition of like the barrier a parent should have between their child mm. so the child doesn't understand about the financial yeah. difficulties about how on edge they are um but you know through this reckless behavior like you said like this is it's questionable immoral well, it's behavior like, you know when she you know sort of seeks up you know, she starts prostituting herself right and you know that seems incredibly powerful because it's shot explicitly from like Mooney's point of view. You know, mm. it's like 
know, she's in the bathtub and and you know we don't even see the gentleman come into the bathroom no, it's well, all there's a kid in here <laughs> yeah and it's like there's that moment of obviously like she's not like a stereotypical oh she's just like completely and utterly there's no polarizing in this you know there's no like she's just a horrible parent collectively but she's clearly not like what Mooney's going to need in order to break that cycle and that's apparent to us for a, a very long period of time but it's it's and we think that you know, we think we know better as this silent observer we're like oh well, she's probably it would probably be best if she does get removed and fostered out but then the actual scene plays out at the end of the film mm. of her being removed from her mum right. and, and you realise how strong the relationship is between those two you realise what you're really asking them to do yeah and I think that you know it's it's great you brought up things like private life in the earlier part of the show because yeah look there's the dry comedy there there's some little like things that still make you laugh you know like the opening scene just unashamedly is about putting you know it's you know it's in that film it's uh, you know Gian, you know Giamatti putting you know shots of of, <laughs> of stuff in in multiple takes yeah and it's like <laughs> but we understand the gravitas by the end of the film when yeah they're broken and worn down by it and I think that the reality of what they're losing and what their that maternal instinct is kicks in in those moments of fight or flight. Yeah. And it just it it breaks you because you're like, I am I right to have wanted this for that whole period of time? And it, yeah, well, that's what's so fascinating. And I can't. It's a such a shame. I can't speak for the first time I saw it, but when we when I was rewatching it. I didn't feel that sense of, of a driving question of like, oh, how are they going to get out of here or yeah. any of those things. I just sort of, I just observed. I was just watching it and like, I know how it all plays out and everything, but I'm just, I'm enjoying the the freedom that the kids are having running around and it's like, mm-hmm. the second time I watched it and it's interesting because it's like, I almost just stopped judging mm-hmm. these characters. I just started observing and just understanding. I think that is, that is just the power of what Sean Baker does with these films. And I, I haven't seen, he's done, you know, if you include, um, is it Red Rock and this new one that's coming mm-hmm. out? I think, yeah, if you include that, that is seven films that he has now made, which is absolutely insane. I did not realize his filmography went that far back. And there actually is a bit of a progression. So the first film he did is called, let me actually get it up real quick. How am I forgetting this? Four, four letter words. That's it. So it's called four letter words. I think it released in the year 2000 and it's about, Four white guys just talking shit. Mm-hmm. And people did not like it. Or at least the letterbox consensus is that it's not very good. And I think what Sean Burke has developed from that time, and of course I don't really know, I'm not as familiar as, as mm-hmm. his work as I should be, frankly, but I will I will get to style it in some of his other films over the next week, hopefully, um, is that that his ability to, to translate these voices and, and put a telescope on these communities and just show us how the other side lives is not a result of a childhood that he grew up in mm-hmm. or anything that, that came from his background, from what I can tell. It stems from him just listening, him being collaborative and open. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I, I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because sort of like looking into a little bit of the the research behind this particular film and sort of where this idea came from i think it was credited that um i'm just going to quickly double check this one um i believe he was one of the 
producers on the show, Chris, uh, sorry, on the on the film, Chris Bergot or Bergot, mm. um, um, who's uh, quite a close affiliate of Sean's, and it's really interesting that he was so he was the one who brought forward the idea because they sort right. of went to Florida and found themselves like you said observing this thing like Chris apparently you know he saw like you know when he was going to Disneyland he saw saw these kids running around for no um like they didn't look like they were going to to Disney World they no, just just sort, sort of roaming roaming <laughs> and of course that leads to why there are a bunch of roaming seven or eight year olds yep. and that led to sort of this motel situation and Defoe's character is so, is explicitly based off the owner of that particular motel and some right. of the stories that he's had over the years like the pedophile story and stuff like that those are actually legitimate like tales that come from that sort of mm. thing that's where that ground of realism is like that pure immersion and like you said like you said just listening just like yeah going into a physical grounded place and not making fiction of the lower class but to physically immerse yourself in it and and sort of tell that story it does feel authentic like and i think that that's the difference it's not a person that lives in the top one percent describing what it's like to be homeless it's uh, it's someone going this is not my life so i can't give i myself cannot give a personal mm. account of relate like empathy and related like empathy yeah. there unless I physically go there and actually ask and interact with people and see what yeah, that life is and, like. and cast a bunch of them and have their voices yeah. be heard and, and like I think just that willingness to collaborate um, across a lot of his films you know it was the exact same situation with Tangerine it was just walking around talking to people hearing stories and generally this is something that Sean Baker talks about that there, there is a interview on the SBS On Demand thing next to Tangerine so you can watch that seven minute interview with him mm-hmm. and he talks about and I think the same thing happened on the Florida project where he would look at people and be inspired by them and their stories and the way they act and, and talk and, and all of that and roam on it for a while of I want to cast someone like that before eventually just deciding I'm just going to cast that person mm-hmm. and that's exactly where the Instagram story comes from is yeah. I want to cast someone like this and then after molding on it like why don't I just cast them yeah you know it's so simple <laughs> but it works again to your point it's like it helps immerse and create this very real world yeah, where it's like I, you watch something like this and it's like this feels real with a spark of fiction and nothing more yeah because it needs to have that wonderment I think there yeah. too and um, I think that the that's what makes it so effective though that, yeah. in my opinion I think that comes through with this, particularly the cinematography, the use of, of like the eye level is her eye level and then using a lot of low angles for adults, like really yeah. forcing that well, sort of you childhood have, perspective. You have the scene when like they're, they're asking the, the van to move, the food van, and mm. then we focus on her as she's below everyone's arms, yeah. like grabbing the bread. Yeah. You know? And being given the bread from the, yeah, the, the charity workers. Yeah. Fantastic. But um, yeah, no, did you have anything else you'd like to add? I'm just going for it now. Um, I wanted to quickly talk about the scene where the tourists show up by accident at the wrong motel. <laughs> Which is so... You know, that was a deleted scene in uh, Lilo and Stitch with like Lilo and Stitch just messing around with like a bunch of American tourists. Oh, really? Yeah. That's funny. It just <laughs> reminded me of that when I watched that scene again. <laughs> I found that out. I didn't know that. It's interesting. Right. No, well, what I liked about that scene is you sort of, you sort of get perspective because it's like, yeah, again, we're, it feels like a slice of life. We're observing. We're not judging. 
um, but in the same token, it's interesting to see these tourists come in and and you know them being sort of shocked and almost appalled, like oh well, mm-hmm. you know why are we here? Why are all these ratty kids walking around? But then it's like you have the kids who are authentically interested in them and are like curious about like this outside entity coming into their playground. Um, so I just thought that was it was neat that they snuck it in there. Just this little scene mm-hmm. that you know the film would still work wonderfully without it, but it's just that extra layer I think that's that's really it's really sweet. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, cinematography wise. So of course, when I first saw this, I actually thought it was sixteen millimeter. It's thirty-five. It's thirty-five. You're correct, um, which I was surprised by, but also thankful because I know the whole thing with Tangerine being shot on a phone. It it was partly to do with the budget limitations and and the fact that he was talking about how new actors it usually takes about a week for them to get used to a camera on mm. set, while with a phone camera, it's almost an immediate like they immediately just get over that hurdle to perform, which was interesting. Yeah. And he talks about in the interview how he absolutely. It just killed him. Just killed him inside to not be able to shoot that on film. So it was nice that he could translate over to this, which was really good. But again, I think what's interesting is that when I first saw this, I noted I liked that they do the the handheld movements. I think particularly the scene when it's very early on when, and um, I'll get their names quickly again. So when Haley and Ashley go out, they kind of get dressed. They go, they go to like a hot dog stand or something. They're sort of out with all the cars and their party. There's a lot of handhelds there. So it has a very documentarian feel. Mm. But re-watching it, I was like, it's actually very rare that it happens. A lot of it's very locked off tripods, very careful pans. Like you said, quite a low angle, majoritively. And the one shot that I love, and I love it a lot because it represents this idea of the kids sort of playing in a playground that without knowing the destruction they're leaving behind for the adults, is a very Wes Anderson-esque shot really far away of the, of the motel and all the doors opening slowly as mm. the power's being shut off and I just I really like that show because again it's it's very it's observational gave you bottle, ro- bottle uh, rocket vibes it does <laughs> it's the same motel Z. yeah um I, that, that's probably my favourite shot um in terms of the cinematography yeah but yeah I don't know I think look, I like the fireworks shot oh yeah that's really nice yeah. That's really nice. Well, you know what? Before we quickly move on, I'd like to talk about... So they obviously go to this abandoned building, mm-hmm. the kids. They set a pillow on fire. It inevitably burns the whole building on fire. Now, this is the the one scene of like real tension, like in the early, like in the first half of the film, mm-hmm. I'd say, where they're generally worried. It's the first time where they're like, oh, like we could get in trouble for this. And Mooney hatches the plan. Like, All right, let's split up here and, you know, don't mention anything. We're going to do this. And they run away. And what's so fascinating is that virtually, with the exception of Ashley and her son, virtually everyone at the motel is excited and, and, and sort of energized by this by this abandoned building burning down. And it's almost like a subversion of expectation. But again, I think it speaks to what you were saying, just sort of their status mm-hmm. in life and the place they're in where it's like, they're happy to see destruction. They're happy mm. to see things as being mo- removed aside. Yeah. Um, which again was a nice. But There's I, that I, level of unattainability. The fact that these are these are abandoned houses that they're not allowed into because. Right. Well, they're wrecked. Yeah. It's destroyed, and it's like, well, screw them. Let it burn. Let it burn. You know, middle finger to the man in, in a lot of ways. But again, that that speaks to the barrier, the pretend barrier that needs to be there mm. between a parent and a child, and that. You know, Ashley as a parent draws that line mm-hmm. and says, "Like, we will be in such trouble if people found out you were involved in this." You know, and I'm you can't hang out with Mooney again. You can't hang out with either of them, and draws that line. But we go over to the 
yeah, the daughter, mother daughter relationship that we're following, and it's a celebration. Let's go watch. Let's go watch it. Let's go watch the burning building. I just thought it was really fascinating mm. to see it again. It's very sisterly relationship. That's yeah. There's no hierarchy there for yeah. sure. But yeah. yeah. Have you got anything else you'd like to add, Jake? No, oh, I think we can jump right into highlight scenes. Beautiful. Um, mm. to be honest, for me, I probably say my highlight scene is. I think the thing that person per like, I like. There are a lot of like effective shorter sequences in mm. this. In this, yeah, but I think one of my favorite ones that really sort of I do like the dynamic that Haley and Mooney have and like I like the one where they go around and they're going to like the golf club and they're trying to like yep. sell the fake well the, the very heavily well, yeah, discounted yeah, bootleg exactly. fragrances and yeah. stuff and they're selling it at a high price they're like it's very capitalistic walking, notions yeah. I'm a fan of it <laughs> walking down the uh, like the freeway and like yep. sticking the like there's that beautiful sunset silhouette shot of her yep. throwing out her hand for like hitchhiking and we really sort of that whole day. We really get to follow their relationship, and we see to get to establish sort of their. their they do have like a loving and, and funful dynamic, but it's an immature dynamic. It's not a real. It's not what really, like I said, it's all about that generational cycle of mm. trying to break. Because the reality is, as much as the ending breaks your heart, it's going to be the best for Mooney, and it's sort of like this thing that if they'd stayed together, what would become of someone like Mooney? Would she just become another Haley? you know? Right. Would, would she just be at the bottom and not get the opportunity to be anything else? Because to be honest, society keeps these people here too. They don't get many opportunities to like maintain. Or they're very much sitting at the bottom of the barrel. They are... At the best, they're going to just be servants for the richer that are coming here for Disneyland, really. Right. Well, that I mean, that's a good point. Is like they do, you know, they go to the golf club or, or things like that. They do target sort of the more wealthier people yeah. to sell those products too. But you you just mentioned something that reminded me because we really didn't talk about this aspect. The very ending, we've talked about obviously Mooney running to her friend in mm-hmm. just in tears, and that that is just some absolute heartbreaking moment there. But then there's the moment that happens immediately after where they. And she grabs her hand and they run into Disney where they mm-hmm. finally reach this place. And I think for me, there's definitely a hint of um, surrealism there. Yeah. I that, don't think they actually go to Disney World. Right. Well, that that's it. It's like, do that. And I, I actually agree with you. I don't think they do. I think sadly it is a fantasy, mm-hmm. sort of a last stop fantasy. It's like it's the, the real world entrenches them yeah. as characters. And I think that's why it hit me so hard is because I knew like the fantasy's over. Yeah. The fun is over. And it's like, the fact that I'm relating to a six-year-old on this level is just absurd. Crazy, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think part of it is that it is fantastical and it's like the same way that like the the motel is vibrant pink. It's like, I don't think it actually is. I think it's just Mooney's idea of what the hotel or the motel looks like. Yeah. So I mean, there's an element of that. So I'm glad I got that answered that you sadly think that... They're, well, that's it again, sadly. Like, it's, it's sad yeah. that they're separating, but... Do you think do you think that's the natural well, thing to happen? But this is what it comes back to. It makes you question it, mm. really, because you're for the whole movie. You're like, well, she needs to have an opportunity for something better. But what really is something better? Well, exactly. But do we really yeah. think that this spiraling, um, good-hearted mother, but spiraling mother, 
is what's best for her. Our brain obviously says no, but our heart's like, well, it's you know easier said than done. And I think that's why that elongated scene of the the child protective services yep. taking her is, is so effective because we get to see all those layers play out and how Defoe interacts in that scene. And yeah. when that's when, yeah, them running off and going into that surrealist world is is their final escape of reality. But yeah. obviously we know better at that point. And I love that you, you think that the motel wasn't that colour. It's, it's a really interesting notion that that's yeah. purely a child's perspective. Yeah. Well, even like I'm looking at the DVD spine, it's completely pink. And it's like, it's such a vibrant fun color and, and that that comes back to it is yeah what is better for this child you know, to go to a, a home you know with a stable family mm-hmm. financially and maybe they have siblings but it's like this is almost like Mooney is such a carefree spirit it almost really hurts just to think of her going to a normal family you know and that yeah they're on edge and they're struggling but this is a way of life that for Mooney is a complete wonderland so mm. it it's very tough, but anyway, we're getting a bit sidetracked. We'll go, <laughs> we'll go what back about to our, you, bud. Yeah, we'll go back to the highlight scene. See, I think the ending is a very obvious. I can't really do that. It's a bit of a cheat, but to that point that I made, where I don't think the pink is really pink, or that I think there are certain visual elements of this film that are exaggerated because we're looking at it from Mooney's eyes. I think the scene where leading up to them burning the pillow, burning the abandoned building, they arrive there and they start trashing the place. They're throwing things out the window and down the down the stairs, and I love that it's. The reason I think it's my highlight scene, again, this is like me really thinking, okay, what what's interesting? Mm-hmm. What's an interesting directorial, in this case, editing decision? The very hard cuts, very loud hard cuts, where it's just bang, bang, of like just this falls over and this comes down and then this smashes. He throws the thing at the window and it just completely shatters, like the energy that comes with that. Mm-hmm. It's like, these are six, seven-year-old kids who probably don't have like the muscle strength to to create this destruction the way that we're seeing it or the way it's being edited together. But it's sort of their perception of it. Exactly. And I think, I'm like, that's actually really clever. I think that's what he's, with very quick, very rough cuts of cut, smash, cut, smash. And I, I think that's my highlight scene because it's very, it's very clever. Well, I'm glad we got to talk about one of the biggest snubs of 2017. That is true. Um, <laughs> there's always snubs every year, isn't there? Yeah. No worries. Well, The Florida Project is currently out on, I think, Prime? Uh, you can rent it and buy it on Prime, yeah. but it's not a part of it. It's actually not a part of any streaming service, sadly. There you go. So you're going to have to rent it and buy it from there. I would recommend buying it. Yep. Get it on Blu-ray. Yeah. It's worth it. Do yourself a favor. <laughs> well, speaking of Prime, though, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? It's actually a pretty breezy week. Look at that. Yeah, so coming... turn, of the, turn of the year. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is what it is, coming from the 3rd of Jan. On Netflix, you have Mother slash Android, which sees Chloe Grace Moretz and uh, it's algae. I think algae Smith flee their country as the world battles artificial intelligence. It's a very vague. It's very re- vague. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. Now, ironically, Mum was actually trying to find this film last night. And I said, "Don't worry, Mother. It's coming to stand this week." Denis Villeneuve's Enemy, which actually oh. came out the same year as Prisoners, so he was a busy boy. They were both busy people. Yeah. <laughs> the director and the actor that year, as well as 2008's Equalize. That comes to stand. Coming to Disney Plus this week is The Big Short, Marley and Me, and Fantastic Mr. Fox. So look at that. You're getting your animated Wes Anderson's finally coming to Disney Plus. Very exciting. On Prime, we have the two Happy Feet films. 
So, uh, are you a fan of the Happy? Are you a fan of Happy Feet? I, got, I haven't seen Happy Feet in so long. It's such a weird film. Now, in hindsight, it's a very weird film to think about because it was like crazy popular when it came out, right? Yeah. Like, but for me, watching it, you, you look at the cast and you're like <laughs> confused by it. Well, for me, I remember it was when they cut to live action. It's in like the third act of the film, and there's like live action segments, and that that blew my mind. Yeah. Because when he gets captured, he's put in like the little thing, and the people like are taking photos of him. Because the whole thing is yeah, they, and they're like they real traveled. people. Yeah, and it's real people. It's live action footage. So weird. That blew my mind at the time. This was before See, it's after very the Invisibles. Because it's like two thousand and that's two thousand six, right? So it's yeah. like there are weird films around that time. Like watch the watch the I know Zathura. Zathura. Very good. It's a yeah, see, I love Zathura, yeah. but it's a weird film to watch in hindsight. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, someone who watched Jumanji as a grown-up, but watched Zathura as a child. Or like Spiderwick yeah. Chronicles. Spiderwick Chronicles, yeah. yeah. There's like a collection, of, like you said, Arthur and the Invisibles. Yeah. Ant Bully. And the Ant Bully. <laughs> oh my God, you're digging out that one. Yeah. I love it. I reckon... I reckon we have mentioned the Ant Bully at least once on this podcast before today. We've mentioned ants a couple of times. We've all definitely we've mentioned many ants. I love it. Uh, and Ooh, coming, Bugs Life. Yeah, yeah. We haven't done. We should do. We should do one of them. We should do ants. Probably ants. We do a Bugs Life. We do ants. Come on, that's more fun. And finally, coming to cinemas, you have the sequel to the CG animated film starring Chloe Grace Moretz again. Look at that. A double feature for her, which of course is the Adams Family animated sequel. Very exciting. Or you can go on the prequel side of things with the fun spy flick, The King's Man. I'm excited. Yeah, that's next week. That's exciting. It's so weird. It feels like it's come out of nowhere. It's like... Yeah, yeah. It's like... But it's been getting a lot of really good reviews. Oh, wonderful. So, um, I hope it's more in line with the first one. I still haven't seen the second one. second one's fine. Okay. I, 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 there's things I don't like about the choices, like bringing certain characters back and I have, stuff like, yeah I have been spoiled that that's unfortunate it's very frustrating because it's like kind of sort of what makes the first one so effective is yeah. its ability to pull not pull any punches I think there's the stakes and there's consequences yeah like yeah. when when Samuel Jackson kills Colin Firth in the first one it's oh, like just went for it mate <laughs> it's, it's what is it, an 8 year old film at yeah, this point it's a while now um anyone who has yeah it's a it's a really cool moment yeah um apparently they're bringing back with the most most deus ex machina moment (laughs) Um, i really have to see it but i'm keen to watch this prequel as well i imagine this is like more removed from the others you don't need to watch like yeah this is like in world war one i'm pretty sure okay so interesting really like which kind of is a fun premise i think because you get that peaky blinders-esque time so you can have a lot more fun with that i think um, so excited, you know, it's nice to have a, like I was saying, that's one of the better, uh, it's nice having those action films where you kind of get to see the action play out, which, you know, it's funny because mm. John Wick was released, I think the same year as Kingsman and they both did it really well and really brought back that right. really sort of, I think began a genre shift with how we perceive action as not being one of many cuts, but wanting to see the choreography play out before our eyes yeah which... no, I'm glad that we're going back into that direction yeah which is really nice yeah so there's one other film that comes out in the next week mm-hmm. but we figure it, it's just such a perfect film Zeke to just to move on yes. with our with our train of cinema side we're continuing our bake off we yeah <laughs> I like the sound of that yeah. oh, but Jake good. what are we watching next week in the show Zeke we're watching Red Rocket <laughs> You said you're never going to step a foot in Texas again. 
I know, this is unexpected. Oh, nothing with you is unexpected. Your last job is over 17 years ago. That's quite a gap. Well, you know, I've worked almost every day for the last 17 years. I moved back in with my wife last week. No, I'm calling the cops. Eight. We decided to make a run of it. I just need a place to crash for a couple of days. What's the big deal? Mikey, go fuck yourself. All right, look, I'm going to be straight with you. I'm an adult film actor. Excuse me? So why are you back, Mr. Hollywood? You're Mikey, welcome back, dude. I'm on top of my game right now on, like, every single possible level. Physical stamina, my mind is sharp. I'm taking 5-HTP for serotonin in my brain. Yeah. With my skill and ability, there's no denying what I can do. The universe is on my side, bro. Before long, it'll be like we're still married. We are still married. Finding himself down and out in LA, an ex-porn star decides to crawl back to his hometown of Texas City to see his estranged wife and mother-in-law. And just as things are starting to work out, he meets a young woman working the cash register at a local donut shop. It's a donut shop from Tangerine! That's my, like... Sean really Baker cinematic I'm universe. I'm going to try and get Tangerine in before next week on the you show. Because um, I felt bad about this director's corner. I didn't talk too much about anything oh, outside of this right. film. I mean, I think the Sean, it's the Florida Project is a perfect representation of what he does right in terms of being a pioneer of the cinema of the others in the modern day, which is interesting because he's a white dude. <laughs> but he does it well. And I think it's because he listens. Yeah, that's all you it. need to do. I'm very excited about this film. Yes, but I got a lot to do, a lot to watch this next week. So, I'll I'll link it to you. I mean, you can find Tangerine; it's on SBS. But I'll link you Starlet as well. Beautiful, and I'll try and catch that as well. And we can continue our Sean Baker discussion next Bake week off. as well. Oh yes, as well as something very exciting. Jake, it's our third anniversary. Oh my goodness! It is me. our third annual. Is it a third annual technically? Yeah, I've always it's our third confused, one. Like. It's the third ever Cinema Sideshow End of Year Awards. Yeah, it's big, exciting. Big time for us. Um, ten, so 156 we, episodes. Yeah. Uh, we will be doing what we did exactly last year, which are the same three categories. Um, two of them have obviously this is their third year. Our Golden Choc Top, a Stale Popcorn mm, Award for yeah. Best and Worst of our title episodes, as well as our favourite film from 2021, which exactly. is the Appreciation Award. Yeah. So you can go back and listen to our Ma Rainey's Black Bottom episode, episode 104 for our last oh. awards. And it's actually good because we do recap in that the award winners for the first year. But if you want to go listen to episode 52, Inside Lewin Davis, mm, um, we can go. touch on, you can see our first ever Golden Choc Top and Stale Popcorn Award winners. Very beautiful. That and I'm very excited. So we, we should clarify... We already know what the winners are for those two main awards. Yep. But of course, there's a lot of individual picks that we don't unless discuss Red Ro- unless beforehand. Does Red unless Red Rock? No, that gets put in next year's one, doesn't it? No, no, no. So if if we watch Red Rock in the next week and it's like mind blowingly like it is like oh my god, this is the best film we've ever seen in our lives, and we want to make it our Golden Choc Top winner, we can. Yeah. Much go. in the way that Ma Rainey had the same honor in one yeah, four. Got- Got my appreciation, made my appreciation list. So yeah, exactly right. Rating. So yeah, um, so that that is possible. But so this is going. The awards yeah. encompass 105 to 156. Yes, you would like to yes quickly file through all of them. 52 <laughs> all episodes. episodes. <laughs> um, so starting from Nomadland all the way up to like we said, Red Rocket. Yeah. So exciting. Um, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sasha podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with. Red Rocket.